Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Narragansett, Rhode Island, one day after we announced our merger with ThankView, and it has been an absolutely roller coaster of a decade building Evertrue, but certainly of the last couple of weeks as we move toward this exciting announcement and want to thank everybody for the amazing outpouring of support. I note that I am sitting in Narragansett, which is relevant because today's guest, a little bit of a different type of guest here for the podcast, is Jason Patnod. And Jason is the executive director at the Schuler Education Foundation and the Schuler Scholar Program. And we will talk more about why those programs uh, should be very relevant to this audience. Uh, but I also want to link it back to the fact that growing up, Jason was about an hour and 12 minutes northeast of me here in Narragansett uh, at Aponiquit Regional High School, home of the Lakers. And uh, at that time, my understanding is that Jason was growing up hoping to become a postal worker. And so with that, Jason, take us back to life at Aponiquit High. Uh, who were you then? And ultimately, what led you off of the path of postal work into uh, an amazing opportunity at Bates College that has led into an opportunity to transform many other lives uh, like yours uh, and mine. So uh, welcome to the show. And I look forward to hearing about Aponiquit High and who that guy was. Hey, Brent, nice to see you. Uh, congratulations on the merger and all the amazing things that are happening for you guys. I, it's an honor to be here. Um, and certainly going back a long ways to those, uh, those proud Laker days at Aponiquit. Um, you know, it's funny because when, when I was in high school, I grew up a low-income kid by single mom. Uh, and it was the kind of thing where being a postal worker was considered to be a good opportunity, right? It was a steady job, government job. And in our family, that's kind of the extent of the opportunity that you would see. It wasn't, you know, because my mother wasn't proud of me or thought I could do amazing things. It just wasn't that background of college. It wasn't in the big picture. So I was fortunate in high school at, at famed Aponica Regional High School in Lakeville, Massachusetts, to run into a couple of English teachers who took me under their wing and really provided me the kind of opportunity to sort of stretch my wings and understand what was possible. They took me to see colleges. They helped me with my applications. Um, they showed me that there was a bigger world out there that led me to Bates College and then um, getting my uh, MBA from the Tuck School at Dartmouth. And it really just changed my entire trajectory. So, um, <laughs> Tell me more about that, because that is a pretty big change. And uh, if you could be more specific about the influence, the intervention, the guidance that they provided that made you uh, adjust your aspirations in such a big way and then be able to go and actually achieve that. Yeah, it's funny. I, I mean, it all started where I was. So the two teachers I'm talking about, their names are Frank and Barbara Rose. They were, you know, married couple. Um, and I think I was in one of Barbara's classes as a freshman, and she noted that I was bright. Um, I was quite a smart aleck in high school, um, but I didn't, I wasn't particularly well read, and I really had a very narrow worldview. And so it really started with them kind of uh, providing almost a liberal arts education where they gave me books to read and music to listen to and movies to watch and, you know, like Kurosawa films or Beethoven symphonies. And, and it was always done in a low pressure way, but kind of, hey, what was that like? And some things I liked and some things I didn't, but it, it created a trust in them because they treated me like an adult and a, and a smart person. And it kind of built that opportunity to say, there's bigger things out there. And that led to, you know, I would do yard work around the house or I help them out with other things. And ultimately, you know, when, when they talked to my mom about my college opportunities, there was a real kind of trust. Um, ultimately, they're, they're almost like a, a second set of parents for me. They, they are tremendously important to me um, to this day, honestly. Yeah. I mean, we haven't had a guest where mentorship uh, hasn't played a huge role in, in supporting 
personal and professional growth, and it sounds like you're uh, certainly no exception. Even as you think about that background and uh, the shift in aspirations, the guidance from those teachers, how did you even think about where to aim? Because it's one thing to sort of even aim. You're aiming at, at postal work, good job, government job, predictable, steady. Then you decide to aim at colleges, period. Well, there's a few thousand of those out there. Right. How, do you, how did you narrow the scope? Uh, was Bates, you know, top of your list or even, you know, just coming myself, first generation college student, grew up on a farm in Iowa. I had no idea that Bates College existed when I was applying to college, for example. Right. I might have heard about, uh, you know, Amherst or Williams, maybe, but I had no idea what, what they were. Um, and, and I feel like that's probably just a common context that, that folks who maybe grew up around higher education or with more of an expectation to go to higher education, that when you grow up in that environment, like we did, you don't even know what the colleges are much less, which one you might want to try to go to. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think in, in the work that I do now in, in, you know, college access for students, we would call what I experienced kind of a fit conversations, right? Where I would talk about what kind of an environment I wanted to be in. What, once it became sort of a conversation that college was possible, that it could be affordable, and that I was smart enough to do it, it became, well, what environment would you kind of enjoy? And I, I knew I didn't want a big city. Uh, I grew up in a small town and that was kind of my speed at the time. Um, so I knew I wanted something small. I love the outdoors and I love the idea of being in kind of a more, you know, rural place like Maine. Um, so I, I'd say I probably targeted the state before I targeted Bates. Um, I actually wound up, um, you know, applying to interviewing with getting into all of the kind of, you know, I, I think five colleges in Maine, the, the three uh, private liberal arts colleges there, Colby, Bates, and Bowdoin, and then um, UMaine and a couple others. But I really decided I wanted to stay in New England, go up north, and then just fell in love, I think, with the environment at Bates when I went up there. But it was something where you had to see it and feel it to, to get there. And so I felt very fortunate that I had someone who had the time and, and the financial capacity to do that for me in the Roses, and it's kind of, you know, in our, our, my current work, that's one of the things we try to set up for the low-income students we work with is give them that opportunity to experience a place and find that best fit. So you showed up at Bates where today, according to the New York Times, the median family income is $226,500 wow. per year. Wow. And 2.8% of students came from the bottom, come from the bottom 20%, which is defined as I think roughly $20,000 or so of household income. So, so quite, you know, quite low. And um, did you realize when you were at Bates and it might've been a little bit different numbers then, but probably not meaningfully different. Did you realize how unique you were, how low income you were relative to the student body, or was it maybe not that obvious. I'll tell you at Brown, where I think 4.1% of people come from the bottom 20%, I had no idea how wealthy the student. I mean, I just had no idea, even until probably a few years ago when I started really paying attention to some of the New York Times uh, analyses of social mobility and sort of where people start, where they end up, the focus on the top 1%. I truly had no idea. Um, and I'm curious what your perspective was uh, coming into a similar environment. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's kind of funny because I think the entire environment was so new to me. Um, the, the college learning experience was so new. You know, the idea that you had all these super bright people around you who see, all seem smarter than me and, you know, these people came from all across the country when I had sort of lived my life in like a 20 square mile space. Um, you know, it, everything felt new. So 
you know, some of the money stuff was shocking. Um, you know, just like the number of forks at a fancy dinner that I got taken to where I didn't have the right clothes and I had no idea how to order and I had no idea how to eat. Um, or just kind of the trips people would talk about, well, I'm going on break and I'm going to, you know, um, Aspen or something. Those things were all shocking to me, but, but everything was shocking. Right. I mean, so was living in a dorm. So was all these other things. So I don't know. There were times when I felt, um, poor, but it was mostly, I felt like foreign. Like I didn't understand what, what this environment was like. And over time, as I got a little bit more used to it and expanded my own boundaries, it was, it was easier, but, but yeah, I think, I think even today, one of the things that's so frustrating about these great schools is that it, it, for a low income student, for a first gen student, you are still going to be a minority on, a, on those campuses. And it does require you know, for you to have a certain level of, of fortitude and willingness to kind of um, grind through that, which, which is not easy, right? It's, it's yeah. not easy to not see people like yourself there. Yeah, I remember, you know, in hindsight, things that I did not think twice of at the time, but I remember how many people asked me where I went to high school uh, when I was in my first year at Brown. And I had no idea that they were sort of really, they were trying to know what private high school that I went to right. in, in a lot of cases. I mean, that's, that's why it was being asked. Um, and, you know, on one hand, I do think, and, and this is your world, but you see all of the work now that is going on around first-gen education and almost thinking about sort of the additional resources and infrastructure, you know, thinking about first-gen or low-income as a minority group that would span race, that would span geography, um, but then there's an element of almost ignorance is bliss. And like the fact that I was so oblivious to the wealth disparity, it, it maybe made it easier to kind of go through. And yeah, I had the forks at dinners and was confused by the crazy vacations, but I was like, oh yeah, my family just didn't really do vacations. And, you know, it wasn't, um, and I probably didn't even know what it cost to go to Aspen. So it wasn't even as much of a sticker shock as as it might have been. So I do think there's this balance of, you know, how do you sort of think of the, the dorm floor or the classroom as sort of this great melting pot equalizer where nobody really knows how much money somebody else has versus creating dedicated infrastructure and support rooted in the fact that you don't have as much money or, or have far less money than your classmates. And I'm curious to know how you think about you know, that tension of, of, of acknowledging it and shining a light on it versus maybe the, uh, the, the oblivion that, that I, that I might've benefited from. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm a little older than you are, but I, I had a similar experience. Um, I think in that I didn't know any better. Right. So it didn't really quite trigger as much. Um, I'm actually a strong advocate for, providing, you know, kind of support and context and making sure that we're at least cognizant of these challenges. You know, when I went to college, it was kind of the whole throw you into the water sort of thing. And there really weren't a lot of, um, you know, basic support structures, right? The idea was, okay, you're going to learn to be an adult here. And we're going to have a relatively safe sandbox for that. But, you know, you figure it out. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it does kind of create um, advantages for, again, folks who have that background, so aren't first-generation students, or, you know, for, for you and me, we're both white men who ultimately are going to see a lot of other white guys at a Brown or a Bates or any of those kind of um, elite institutions. So if you are, you know, a, a poor Latina or African-American, you know, that that sense of oblivion is probably not as available. Right. Just because you're not going to mm -hmm. see as many black faces or you're not going to mm -hmm. see any, as many students of color. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, 
Anthony Jack, who's an academic over at Harvard, he he calls those kinds of students who are both poor and underrepresented, uh, you know, doubly disadvantaged, right? Because it's like you've got sort of the income gap and you've also got the identity gap. And for you to be successful, I, I think it's helpful to have some of that support. And, and for me, as I've grown older and I've learned more about my own privilege, even though I grew up poor, right? Even though I had plenty of things that would not be seen as advantages, I still have some based on my, you know, my race and my gender. Um, I think those things can be valuable and school is a good place to do it because it is structured and um, it is easier to provide that support and still have that safe sandbox space. Love it. Well said. And, uh, I uh, look forward to learning more about how Schuler supports uh, some of that infrastructure and programming. Tell me a little bit about the transition, you know, your senior year at Bates, what are you thinking about? Um, what's next and where do you land out of college? Yeah, this is, uh, this is hilarious. I, I, I don't think I've spoken publicly about this ever, but. There um, we go. We're digging deep for audience. You hear that? There you go. Scoops. The scoop. Uh, um, the, so, you know, I, I, um, I loved college. Uh, I particularly, I was an English major. Um, so I really loved, uh, books and writing. And so I kind of left college thinking that I was going to write a novel. I was going to be a great American novelist. Right. And I figured I needed about six months to write that book and get super famous. So I was actually, you know, not all that concerned about a career afterwards because I thought I was going to be a writer. And I actually joined a, um, a British bookseller who was opening in, um, in America for the first time, a company called uh, Waterstones. So Waterstones is kind of like Barnes and Noble in the UK. And I had spent my junior year abroad um, in York, England, and loved the store there. So when I was leaving college and I learned they were opening their first store in Boston, I joined them largely because, again, I thought, well, this is great. I can get a discount on my books and I can write my novel and I'll come back and give a reading and it'll be wonderful. You know, uh, 30 years later, I still haven't finished that book, but um, I did get a great, you know, business experience at Waterstones because they they actually allowed us as clerks, as entry-level people, to run sections of the store. So I was actually the buyer and the marketer, um, as well as, you know, kind of the liaison with authors for, I think, our mystery section and maybe like our sports section or something. Uh, but it was like running a little business at 22. And it was really great. It sort of showed me how much I enjoy all that stuff. Um, so I went from wanting to be you know, a writer to, you know, really loving um, kind of business and, and running organizations. I have three follow-up questions. What's your favorite mystery book? What's your favorite sports book? And what's your book about? <laughs> that is hilarious. You know, so my favorite mystery book, I, I would probably say it's more like I think about writers that I love. So, um, you know, I think I just read... Um, you know, another Patricia Highsmith uh, novel and her books are always great. She's like, her, her characters are incredible. Um, you know, the, in terms of sports books, David Halberstam is the guy that I love the most or Seth Wickersham, you know, I'm, again, I can't take the boy out of New England. So I'm very interested in uh, Patriots books and Wickersham has a couple now that I think are both really interesting. Um, and then my novel, uh, believe it or not, was about uh, an art forger. So in World War II, there was a guy who um, forged Vermeers and he sold them largely to uh, the Nazis and made a lot of money. But at the end of the war, um, you know, the, the paintings were recovered and um, Hermann Goering in particular had a couple um, and they tracked them down to this guy and said, hey, you're selling Dutch patrimony to the Nazis. That's, um, you know, that is a crime and you're going to be executed for it. And he goes, no, 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 I, I didn't sell them for mirrors. I sold them me. Right. It was my painting. And he actually painted uh, another copy to prove that he didn't, you know, that he, he was the, the artist. And it's a great story. 
and it would be a fun novel to write uh, with some edits, but you know, it's I think yours you, now. You, I think you cut straight to screenplay. <laughs> there you go. There you All go. Right. Let's so get a development working, deal going. Absolutely. So you're working in the uh, the, the bookstore. You're uh, in Boston. Uh, and then ultimately, I see that you became COO of Hugo Books, Inc. at an interesting yep. time, 99 to 2001, which is known as the dot-com boom and bust. And so I'm just curious what, what Hugo Books was doing. And as you sort of watch the, uh, you know, early innings of the Internet and the potential disruption in the, in the uh, you know, certainly in the publishing world, just what your perspective was on all that and how your career, career evolved. Sure. I mean, um, so that was definitely the the early stages of Amazon. Um, and I think that was what was most fascinating to me was what Amazon was trying to do. You know, back then they were a pure um, marketing play where they wouldn't even, they didn't have warehouses, they didn't keep stock. Um, and pretty much all they sold was books. But, you know, what they had was that customer information that allowed them to sort of um, recommend things and connect directly to a customer, which, you know, as a retailer at the time, you didn't have those opportunities. And it really turned on my business mind because with, with retail, you expect people to walk in the door. You don't know anything about them. Um, if they buy something, maybe you do, but that's your only chance. Uh, and then they typically walk out the door and it's over. So I was fascinated by that idea that the internet and e-commerce allowed you to understand more about people and give them a better experience. Um, so at Hugo, I mean, my job was largely to um, try to keep a, a set of local stores competitive when the internet was really coming to bloom. And like, you know, secretly at night, I was like, ooh, Amazon, very cool. During the day, it was like, how do I fight against this? And, and the only real way to do that and what we did was to lean into the local experience. So, you know, I, my job was largely to connect the back end of these stores to make sure that we could leverage the scale we had. I think we had five stores and so anything that could be centralized and scaled, we, we did. So we bought a lot of stuff in bulk, a bestseller, we would buy in bulk instead of, um, you know, five stores with separate orders. Um, but then we would really lean into the local piece as well, where each store would make sure that they were very, very local to their environment. And, and that combination of saving money where you could at scale and then um, personalizing really heavily at the local level worked pretty well. Uh, it was fun. It was great. I love that work. But what, you know, what triggered for me uh, leaving was we were going to potentially buy uh, another chain that was uh, going bankrupt. And I realized that I had learned everything I knew about business through just experience, right? Like I said, I was an English major. I mean, I was an art minor in college, right? I was like a painter. Um, so I had no business background at all, learned it on the job. And I didn't have the skills to value the opportunity about whether we should purchase this other business or not. And, and I realized that my tool bag had some major gaps in it. And that's when I decided to, you know, to go to business school because it was like yeah. The, yeah. the time for me to learn. And so you get to the Tuck School of Business in Hanover, New Hampshire at Dartmouth in the fall of 2001, right. which is dot-com bust slash 9-11. Yep. And you are, I'm going to go out on a limb, the only English major with an art minor that year in your class at Tuck. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, I would say that's a fair assumption. So there's a lot going on in the world. And I know that with, with that background, it can be hugely beneficial in the long term, but can be pretty uh, overwhelming uh, you know, in the short term in the MBA classroom. I studied Spanish, Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian at Brown, but I did four years of investment banking and private equity before business school. So was able to kind of round it out. Um, it had to be a little bit in intimidating or overwhelming 
to sort of be sitting there in that fall, both, you know, academically, but then also given what was going on in the outside world. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, I think I've never been um, uh, cursed with uh, a lack of self-esteem, right? Like I've always felt like I can sort of go into an environment and figure it out. And definitely, you know, for certain things like my finance courses, um, you know, there were uh, capital markets course or something. Those were tough, right? Because I didn't have that frame of reference. Uh, but the interesting thing was because I was fairly late to B-School, I, I went 10 years into my career and I had run two organizations. I actually had a lot of experience, practical experience yeah. that my peers didn't have. And, you know, and that actually helped because, you know, when you've done it and, and you know, when you've got actual applications, um, I think it gives you a confidence and, and it gives people a sense that okay you know this guy knows what he's doing so um I was so you were like the 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 old wise guy in the class yeah. basically not wise <laughs> yeah. guy but with wisdom yeah well it, it was or funny both. yeah because it yeah. was the first time I had always been kind of the whiz kid uh prior to that right I mean I was running my first organization at 25 um and so I'd always been the young dude who was like who's this guy and then I go to Tuck and suddenly I'm the old guy. And I was like, wow, this is weird, but it was actually fun. And, um, you know, all the other stuff, my regular background, my political background, right? I'm a little more liberal than the average uh, MBA student. Um, all that stuff was kind of a counterpoint, but I think it was valued. And, you know, shout out to Tuck. I think they try to create that environment at that school um, where, you know, you do get a very collaborative place where people respect each other and, and what they bring to the table, but, um, it worked out. I think, I think the dot-com bus and 9-11, that was definitely tougher, right? Cause when I got accepted to business school, when I decided to go, it was definitely go, go, you know, uh, dot-com times. And, uh, you know, I think the year before I went to, to B school, it just getting out of just graduating would have been a guarantee of, of, you know, all of your fees being paid and all these other, all these other opportunities that basically dried up the second I walked in the door. So it was a little scarier once we were there and, and nine 11 was very obviously um, is something that threw us all off kilter. But by the time I left, even though it was tough coming out, you, you know, the, the things are starting to turn a little bit and I was excited for um, getting out there and, and trying my new skills. So one of the amazing things about or, or parts of business school is you just get thrown in with people from different backgrounds, different countries. I mean, that was certainly the thing that stood out to me was the international student population much more uh, even than at Brown uh, from every sort of industry, you just get exposed to sectors and jobs that you don't even know exist. Um, and then you rapidly have to decide. So within this, uh, uh, you know, smorgasbord of ideas and roles and industries, what might I like to do when you've got to pretty quickly narrow it down? And it sounds like you were able to sort of build that toolkit and then go back into the publishing world to maybe take on some of the challenges that you felt uh, less prepared to take on prior to your MBA? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I felt like I had it, an opportunity to go back to the industry with um, more tools and, and probably to be able to sort of explore the things that had intrigued me earlier when I mentioned Amazon and that idea of understanding your customer base um, and, you, you know, using online tools and digital to um, leverage that, I, I really wanted an opportunity to explore that space further. And so I was fortunate to um, run into a guy who's a Tuck alum who's running a small publishing house, a children's publisher um, at the time called Karis Publishing. Their core work was um, Cricket Magazine and a few other fairly famous children's magazines. But 
um, they wanted to sort of move into um, a more modern world where, you know, they would be using a lot more digital tools for marketing. Um, and they had this amazing asset, which was they knew who their customers were, right? It was an early subscription model, which, you know, now we look at Netflix or we look at any of these other kind of basic subscription model services. That's, that's like a gold standard at this point and sort of a standard approach. But, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, God, it is 20 years ago. Um, that was uh, less apparent what was interesting about that. It, it was considered very old fashioned, right? But what I saw was that that knowledge base when you applied to digital tools and, you know, digital products could actually become the future. And that's kind of what we set out to do. So we started doing a lot more digital in terms of marketing at first, understanding what those customers wanted, extending them in terms of new products, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the guy that hired me wound up leaving the organization after a few years and they asked me to take over. So at that point we hit the gas on really trying to transform the organization into a full digital media company. Yeah. Um, and then somewhere in there, you know, the iPad came out and, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that was really it. That was when my mind got completely blown. I was like, yeah. this is it. This is what we have yeah. to do. That is when my mind got blown as well. And um, uh, I am seeing a, a theme emerge as we spend time talking about your career path. There is, you are unafraid to try to transform and digitize legacy businesses against all odds, whether it was the bookstore chain, right. whether it was cricket publishing, now higher education. There are a lot of people that look at those sectors and say, run away. It's too much work. It's too slow. Go spend your money, you know, go spend your life at Amazon or at Netflix doing the disrupting. Why are you spending all this time trying to prop up these, you know, dinosaur industries? I'm obviously doing the same thing. So we're aligned right. in that uh, regard. But I got to ask you, what was it like having a number one education app on iTunes? Because sure. our first product at Evertrue was actually a mobile app focused on alumni engagement. We launched it with Brown University. And there was a day when we were at the top of the charts too, even within that community. And it was just, it was such a wild, wild west moment. And I imagine that's what .com one felt like as well. But for me, it was the first time I got exposure to such a transformational change. It was, you know, web sort of 1.0. Then there was mobile. Yesterday, we heard about the metaverse from Facebook. Maybe that's okay. the next big thing. But um, I'm just curious what it was like, sort of, one, am I right that you're unafraid to try to digitize legacy industries? And two, um, just tell me about being the top of the charts on iTunes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I love, um, I, one of the things that always intrigues me, I think, is um, kind of assets that are underappreciated, right? Like I, you know, and I think I, I love bookstores. I always did. And as much as I really am impressed with um, e-commerce and, and at the time, Amazon was incredibly radical, even though they've far surpassed that in terms of their strategic work. Um, I, I still, I, I like what's there. And, and, you know, when you think about media, I always think about content first and can you make good content? Um, or when I think about college, I think, you know, is it's very hard to create an institution that has success and that has all the, you know, the, you think about the campus, you think about the professors, you just think about everything that goes into that. It's, you can disrupt those things and, and I admire that, right? It's, but for me, I'm much more interested in unlocking potential and transforming those things to make sure that they can continue in the future because they're amazing and they deserve it. Um, and and I'm, frankly, I, I do like to convince people of something for whatever reason, I actually enjoy like the challenge of getting someone who goes, oh, I would never do that, right? We're a, we're a 
paper publishing company and we love paper. And I'm like, okay, but have you thought about, uh, I mean, I remember the first time, you know, we were doing that app that you're talking about. We got our number one app. It had been months of trying to convince um, ownership that it was worth the investment because it was substantial. And what, what it led to was understanding that we could create a new product where we would reach not only the, the same people we'd reached, but a whole new set of people and a new experience for them. And particularly for children where interactivity creates delight. We did a, you know, we did basically a prototype, showed it to our 80 year old founder. And she was like, oh, I get it. Because, you know, the, the kids were loving it. And that's when I realized it's like for her, it's about delight and it's about creating a great experience. She doesn't care about, you know, digitization, monetization, any of those things. For her, it's about sort of the, the product and the clarity of the experience. And so I just showed her that this would deliver that. And, and then she was all in, which was great. Um, and it was funny that the day that we, um, we hit number one on iTunes was actually the day of a board meeting. And it was our first board meeting after the product had launched. And there had been a lot of skepticism as we had gone through the transition. But I actually had to tell my board to put their phones down because they kept refreshing the bestseller list, watching the, uh, watching the app go up the list. And someone would call out, it's at number three. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, it's, it's at number two. And I'm like, guys, please. We got two hours of stuff to handle here. Then you can look at your phones all you want. So, you know, early, early put your phone down moment. It was pretty funny. Timing doesn't always go your way around board meetings, but that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, that, that was actually um, a fun day. And, you know, I mean, those early days are um, a little different than what they are now, but um, that's what's so fun. I, and I think is so exciting about early adoption of opportunities, even if you're not necessarily going into full disruption mode, I think leaning into, you know, like you guys do, leaning into what technology can provide um, and connecting that um, to people and, and watching the alchemy that happens when you create those kinds of opportunities is pretty exciting. Um, and it's one of the things that keeps me going, certainly. I love it. Uh, great perspective. And yeah, look, I mean, we, we've been fortunate to have support from uh, venture capitalists that evaluate a bunch of different sectors. And one of our investors in particular has been really focused on the education vertical. And the portfolio of that firm, University Ventures, is basically comprised of a couple of different camps. One camp, like me, like you saying, look, there's a ton of potential. Everything that you said on this um, uh, podcast about your experience at the bookstore, about the internet helping us better un understand people and give them a great experience, personalizing at a local level, like everything you said that bookstores were dealing with 20 years ago, that is what fundraising and advancement is dealing with today. It's 20 right. years later, but I can use the exact same sentences to describe the problems and the opportunities within the fundraising realm. And so we are in that camp of companies trying to unlock the latent potential and drive efficiency in the education system because we believe that based on our personal experiences, it can be a great equalizer and a massive catalyst for social mobility. The other half of their portfolio is like, we are going to disrupt higher education. It is a complete waste of money. You don't need these campuses. We're going to go direct to consumer. We're going to be Amazon for education. And there is a real, you know, tension there that we sort of think about every day. And, and you know, look, on our path, we deal with friction and bureaucracy and decision making and consensus building. On their path, they deal with everything as it relates to going direct to consumer. It's one thing to launch a product. It's another thing for it to actually work and for it to be good. And all the people that talk about MOOCs and access to education that don't drive relationships and mentorship that you developed at Bates, that I developed at Brown, that I'm sure the Schuler Foundation helped wrap around your students. Those are the aspects of higher ed that I do not think are well marketed or, or are championed enough 
in the uh, face of all of the folks sort of disparaging higher education or traditional higher education. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and I think as much as I don't disagree with ed tech generally that, you know, there's more efficient ways of delivering content knowledge to people um, and that there are models that we should continue to try to understand. Um, I do think that for a lot of use cases, more traditional education is still very valuable and very hard to replicate, right? Like, you know, I was in the ed tech space when we sold Cricket to ePals um, and I respected everything that we were doing there, but it's always about, um, you know, kind of scale and, and the thing that mentorship is, doesn't have, you know, can't do is really it's hard to scale, right? That one-to-one -one relationship, those people that you knew and you learned from at, at, at Brown, the roses for me in high school, and then all those relationships post, um, those are not really scalable. And sure, you can use technology to distribute that, make it a little bit easier, but it's just a use case that doesn't really fit, I think, into you know, venture um, thinking around technology and ed tech. So there's nothing wrong with trying to change things and to create more opportunity for students who are rural or really low income or, you know, for things that don't require, honestly, that one-to-one -one relationship. But, you know, I do think you're, there's a place for the campus for the experience yeah. and it's just not that efficient, but that's okay. Yeah, well, that's a good segue to talking a little bit about uh, what you're doing today, the Schuler Education Foundation, the mission of that organization and some of the recent work you all have done that has caught national uh, headlines. Um, I'm just gonna read a quick, quick statement from your mission statement. Everybody can go to schulereducationfoundation.org to learn more, but uh, we believe that high achieving, hardworking students in America deserve an opportunity to gain access to top tier liberal arts colleges and to be supported before, during, and after their college education. And there's a few other statements as well, but that's the gist of it. Uh, tell me how that works uh, and tell me how the foundation makes decisions as it relates, where, as it relates to where you should invest your philanthropic resources. Yeah, there's so the foundation kind of focuses really on two things within what you described. Um, the first is we want to support the liberal arts education in America in general. Um, and we want to make sure that um, high achieving, low income, underrepresented students get a chance to experience that education. So for most of our um, history, we've been around for about 20 years. Most of our history, we focused on supporting students most directly through the Schuler Scholar Program, which is our college access arm. We work in 15 high schools across Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, and we, you know, start working with students in early high school and then help them get into uh, and be successful at the highly selective liberal arts colleges that you sort of referenced. Um, and that model is, is great. It's a direct service model and it's a one-to-one -one model, right? So we were talking about scalability a minute ago. This is, um, this is genuine boutique one-to-one um, -one thing. Our, our value statement says that we succeed one scholar at a time at the scholar program. And we do because they're all unique and they all need something specific really effective, but not very scalable. I, I mean, we've got 15 locations, we're serving, you know, more than a thousand kids, but in the next 10 years, we're gonna expand, but we'll, we'll be lucky if we can get at a zero to that, right? If we can get to 10,000 students. So we started to look at what else could we do to make an impact and maybe an impact at a higher scale and so what we realized is we could kind of move up the value chain and instead of working directly with individual students and helping them succeed at individual colleges, we could maybe start working with uh, colleges themselves and giving them the opportunity to expand access to a broad number of students. Um, so we, we started the Schuler Access Initiative this year 
specifically with the idea that we wanted to increase the number of low income and undocumented seats at a bunch of great colleges. Um, we would uh, fund those seats for 10 years. Uh, we would ask colleges to have their donors match that money and hopefully make those seat increases permanent. Um, and then we wanted to get uh, learn how to best support those students. So we're going to have all those participating colleges be part of a research project that tracks those students' success um, through, through their college period. But moving up that value chain and sort of saying, all right, we're going to spark this opportunity means that we can you know, serve many thousands of students and, and create a permanent legacy of increased access that not only strengthens these colleges, because frankly, bringing in these students um, creates real value for their institutions, right? They, you know, whether it's you or whether it's me, yes, we got a lot out of our educations, but we kind of brought something to the college too, right? And so that's a, a huge advantage for the schools and clearly um, the students will benefit. So we're excited by this because we feel like this is the way for us to take our mission commitment and bring it to scale in a way that, you know, we can't necessarily do it um, at the scholar program level. And tell me about the arc of the experience as it relates to some of the work you've been doing to support alumni giving and how you view, I mean, on one hand, the foundation has a lot of resources and you can allocate those resources but you've also focused on driving operational efficiency at the liberal arts college such that you can supplement foundation uh, philanthropic gifts with stronger philanthropic revenue and a healthier long-term donor pipeline at your partner institutions, which you could have imagined a world where you didn't do that, where you didn't focus on that part of the business, that you just stayed really focused on the access for that core audience, as opposed to the other side of the student journey on the alumni and uh, advancement realm. And so just tell me a little bit about the catalyst to go there in the first place and some of the uh, great institutions you've had a chance to partner with along the way. Sure. So, I mean, I think from our standpoint, Again, if we want to be able to ensure that the students that we support are going to get the experiences at colleges that we want them to, to um, experience, those institutions need to remain strong and vibrant moving forward. And, and really that requires a reliable, sustainable funding source. And so all projects that we do um, kind of have a sustainability component there where we're trying to unlock, you know, capacity to ensure that the work is sustainable. But, you know, the thing that you're mentioning is um, the Young Alumni Engagement uh, Initiative that we started um, in 2018 uh, and it just finished this, this um, summer. And that project was designed to um, increase engagement for younger alums um, who have not really been supporting their schools financially the way their older peers would have at the same age. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm an old man, I'm 52 years old. So, I, you know, I'm Gen X and um, at, at 25, my um, generation supported coll their colleges at a higher level than students do now. And the, the interesting thing was, you know, clearly if you can't engage um, alums when they're young, it's highly unlikely you're going to engage them when they're older. And, and it, that's really, really important, as you know, because today's smaller donors become major donors when they get older and they get later in their careers. So if you, if you don't want to miss an entire generation, you've got to engage and you've got to engage genuinely. So we saw a real risk of a funding gap that would affect long-term viability that we felt needed to be addressed. Um, and we wanted to attack it through, like you said, through efficiency, through technology, through knowledge. So we basically engaged with uh, Ruffalo and Noel Levitz 
and worked with five great colleges, Bates, Carleton, um, Middlebury, Williams, and Wellesley, um, to try to understand what it was that their young alumni were, interest, were interested in, um, what they cared about, um, and how they felt about the college. And collecting that information, we surveyed them for three years, once a year, saw how their um, thinking evolved over time, particularly through the pandemic, uh, but also saw the things that were consistently um, important to them and tried to create genuine um, engagement that would lead to donors. Um, and it was very successful. Uh, we had 54% of the available donor base activated, which is incredible, um, particularly when you think some of those folks had been out of um, college for a dozen years. Um, so to activate them after that length of time is pretty amazing. 50% uh, of those folks um, converted, so renewed. So that's really exciting as well, because that means we have a long-term relationship with them. And most importantly, I think, is we learned a lot of best practices around what engagement looks like, what effective engagement looks like, and hopefully other colleges can leverage that knowledge. And anybody who's interested can go to the website to see a toolkit that we created from that. Um, In fact, we asked you if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the advancement sector, what would it be? And you said, I'd want everyone to wake up and be ludicrously interested in downloading the toolkit because of it. So <laughs> uh, that is a poignant way of putting it with your uh, literary roots. It makes total sense to me, but why should we, we be ludicrously interested in the toolkit? And what are the findings? What do young alumni want? 54% activation at a time of sub 10% alumni participation. What's the secret? Yeah. I mean, I think what, what the secret is, is, listen to what your alumni care about, right? And make sure you know what that is, right? So you've got to invest in understanding what they're interested in because for that age range in particular, but I think for almost any donor at this stage, they want to give to something that they believe is going to be effective and that is useful and that they care about. So it's, you know, basic purpose-driven given giving, but it has to be something that, is genuinely valuable to the college and something that they wanna support. So what we saw specifically that folks were interested in were things like social justice, were things like access for um, first-gen and low-income students. Um, you know, They were interested in environmental things. They were interested in racial justice. Um, and those were all very, very um, useful to know. But one of the things we found is that, you know, you couldn't just take each of those topics and cookie cutter say, well, give to, you know, Bates for social justice, right? They, your donor needed to know that there was a genuine specific thing that that money was going to go to and that it was authentically something they feel the school could do. Um, you know, environmental causes, for, for example, most people really appreciate that schools endorse those opportunities and maybe even were trying to grow greener on campus, but donors there felt they could give their money to someone else and, and it would be more effective. For things like access and financial aid, that's exactly what the school does. And so they saw a lot of interest in that whether it was buying computers for low-income students or um, stoles for um, uh, you know, African-American uh, students who are graduating to celebrate their identities. Um, these are direct specific use things that people were really excited by. And then honestly, almost any college wants to get done anyway. So if you, yeah. if you ask appropriately, um, they're gonna give. So I have two questions. One is how do you deal with the tension, especially many of the institutions you partner with? We want you to give to the annual fund. You know, we want you to give to this general unrestricted annual fund. And we, we need the money to be able to do things with it that we see, uh, you know, as we see fit. That is sort of the opposite of, yeah, but I want to help a kid buy a computer. Yep. Like I would love to buy a kid a computer. I know what that is you know, giving to the annual fund, I don't know what that is. Do you use the annual fund to buy kids computers? Which kid did my annual fund gift 
buy a computer for? Can I meet that kid? And like, how do you close the loop with the donor? So one, there's a question of restricted versus unrestricted. And then two, whether it's actually restricted or perceived to be restricted, how do you close the loop? So you're not only doing the compelling purpose-driven interest-based messaging up front, but on the back end, it's like, Brent, you bought the kid a computer and here they are and they want to say thank you. And look, that is part of the reason we are merging with thank you because we think the opportunity to both do more content, interest-based marketing up front, and then close the loop with the donor in the back end at scale is going to be critical. But philosophically, where do you stand on this? And how do you reconcile? I would love to buy a kid a computer. I don't know if I want to give 1500 bucks to the annual fund. Yeah. I mean, so this is easy for me to say, because I'm not in the business, right? I'm, I'm just the guy that's trying to help. But if it were me, I look at this as the, the general annual fund ask is kind of lazy and also I think a little bit outdated. In, in terms of lazy, I would say that it's something that a, um, it's easier to just ask for the annual fund because you don't have to track that uh, Brent bought a computer first, you know, so-and-so. Um, and, and historically, it was very hard to do that. And so I understand why institutions wanted to keep it general, keep it unrestricted, and make sure that they didn't have to you know, make promises they couldn't keep. But as you just pointed out, the technology is much more robust now and much easier at, at scale, but at a granular level of detail to connect giving to specific purposes and not make it overly onerous. So I think people need to recognize that fact that those tools exist and, and feel more comfortable understanding that yes, the general, the annual fund is actually a collection of very specific use cases. And you know, if we wanted, we could pull out some of those use cases and still get the same amount of money. You're just, you know, you're restricting it, but you would restrict it anyway. And you're going to get better input from your donor. So why not try that? The other thing that I think is important to recognize here is that I think donors' intents have changed so drastically, even in the last couple of years. What we saw with the surveying was that at the very beginning of our surveys, most donors gave out of gratitude. So they gave because I had a great experience at Carleton or I had a great experience at Middlebury. And I want to say thank you. By the end of our three-year survey, those same people were saying, I am giving to, to Carleton or Middlebury because I want somebody else to get that experience. So it went from gratitude for their own experience to wanting to make a difference in somebody else's life. And you cannot do that as effectively if it's just a general gift. You want to know, how am I going to help that person? Am I going to give them financial aid? And am I going to give them tools? And am I going to give them, you know, a professor who they want to see? Um, so between the fact that it's easier to um, not use um, general funds all the time and the fact that people expect that, want that, it, I think it's got to change. Yeah. I mean, look, it's inertia is powerful. And I think for years we sort of heard, it was almost like, and I say this all, with all due respect to our annual fund leaders that are listening, but what we heard from annual fund leaders is it's like they were annoyed that donors wanted to make a gift that drives a specific impact. It's like that was right. sort of inconvenient and frustrating exactly. as opposed yeah. to leaning into it and saying, Let's unlock that and get 54% of people to give because they're super inspired instead of begging and pleading and soliciting over and over to get to a 10% participation rate in a general sort of, you know, very, um, you know, homogenous general annual fund. Yeah, exactly. It's, it is more work and it is, you know, on both ends, both on the ask and crafting something that is smart and relevant and authentic. And then obviously, and the, the actual administration, but 
that's what you got to do. And, and I honestly believe that your participation rate and the size of your gifts, because in our, in our work, not only did we get 54% participation, but it doubled the size of the average gift from that cohort, right? So you got more in terms of people and a bigger donor amount. So right. it's worth yeah, I mean, it. I don't know the difference between a thousand dollars and two thousand dollars to the annual fund and let's be honest there's no difference when it's positioned that way i know the difference between buying one kid or two kids computers exactly and i think the more that we can sort of package up the asks not putting everything on a menu with the price next to it but being able to connect revenue to impact gives you a chance to get people to make those stretch gifts and uh I think that's something we've obviously seen from, you know, the Kickstarters and, uh, you know, the so forth, where giving folks a clear ladder that is different than the president circle and the chancellor circle and another circle and the trustee circle, which are just a bunch of circles that really don't have a, a distinction to the donor. What is the impact level at these different gift amounts? How many lives can I change and how can I change them? at these diff- different gift amounts, then you can have the conversation with the donor. How many lives do you wanna change? What impact could you see yourself supporting five students with new laptops? And we'll make sure to connect you to those students, Brent. I mean, I think that's where we need to get to. And, 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 and uh, in the absence of scalable technology, it becomes overwhelming. Uh, we're not there yet, but I think we're getting closer. Well, and, and again, the thing that I find heartening is, is I think when you connect the dots for, for even old school advancement teams, they do this kind of work with major donors, right? All the you know, time. That, All the that's time. exactly what it is. And so just say, bring that down um, and you will get equal, you know, you will get equal opportunity. Fine. You might not get same return on the individual conversation, but technology, like you said, can make that more feasible and more effective. So it's, um, it's an opportunity. Well, uh, a couple of final questions. I know we got to jump, but, but first of all, it sounds like you're trying to grow the partnership uh, with institutions in this initiative. What does that look like? What are your goals to bring on more colleges? What is the profile and how should folks listening learn more and follow up? Yeah, thank you. So we are um, ultimately hoping to invest $500 million um, in this project. Uh, we have five partner schools already, and we're hoping to add another 15 uh, to 20 over the next couple of years. Um, a good fit is a, um, a college that uh, is a liberal arts school that is interested in, in increasing the number of low-income or undocumented students on their campus. So not just keeping the same numbers, but actually growing those numbers, has a donor base that's willing to walk with us on that journey. So matching our money one-to-one. Um, and is a school that is good at graduating those students already. Um, we would be uncomfortable adding more low-income um, uh, or undocumented students to your campus if you're not only already doing a great job at graduating them. So a school that is interested in increasing that population and is good at serving that population would be a good fit. Um, and they should just go to schulereducationfoundation.org. They'll see a link to the Access Initiative and they can fill out um, you know, a, a form to express their interest. I love it. Um, I want to give you a chance to give a couple of shout outs. I know you've been collaborating closely with some of our friends in the sector. Uh, you know, you mentioned RNL. I know you work closely with Sarah Kleberger. Who are some of the other folks that uh, you've really enjoyed collaborating with on this journey? Sure. So at, at RNL, definitely Sarah and um, Dana Carpenter has also been really helpful. Um, Shay Galto and Miranda Hickman. Um, all fantastic folks at RNL, they were great. In terms of our college partners, um, again, we worked with um, VPs, so someone like Tommy Bonner, um, Sarah Pearson at Bates, Megan Mori at Williams, they're all amazing folks. 
Um, and then our annual fund directors, who again are trying to break through the, the wall of annual funds um, things. I think about someone, um, you know, like Laura Day uh, over at Williams, uh, Nina Emmy at Bates. Those guys were amazing. Alana um, at Middlebury. So I just, Everybody on those teams, they all did a great job. And we felt so fortunate to be able to collaborate with them. I want to congratulate them on their amazing work. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we'll get a chance to, to do it again soon. All right. So what are the big, hairy, audacious goals coming out of that work? Is 54% the limit? I mean, where could we go? You know, it's interesting. I honestly think you could go higher. I, I mean, I don't know, 75%. And, and certainly the thing that I think is the real opportunity is the, is the renewal, right? Is the conversion. Because as, as good as 49% was, I think we all believe that the pandemic affected that a little bit. And I do think that for true, authentic relationships, you need that regular participation. Um, you can always sort of juice um, the, initial, um, the initial give, but can you create a long-term habit either through, you know, um, uh, kind of the, the subscription model or through just regular kind of communication? That's the gold standard. So I'd love to see 70%, um, you know, conversion rates instead of 50 all right, folks, you heard it here first. We are shooting for 70% alumni participation. If that doesn't catch your attention, I don't know what does. Uh, look up Jason. Look up the Schuler Foundation. It's an amazing uh, institution that is driving uh, incredible impact in a truly uh, just as deep of a partnership with the sector as, as one could imagine. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, Jason, and sharing your journey from Poniquit High uh, all the way to today. Uh, and I wish you nothing but the best as you all continue to champion this incredible initiative for access and uh, uh, social mobility uh, by way of the work at the foundation. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, go Lakers, right? Yeah. All right, go Lakers, go Lakers. Signing off, Take everybody. Care. Take care.